Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. This is the story of the reinstatement of Peter. If we had not had the 21st chapter of John, I want you to imagine mentally, emotionally, where Peter is. In Peter's mind, it's been so recent when the last chance he had to prove himself as a disciple of Jesus, he failed him. And that has not been dealt with yet. Peter must still be carrying quite a guilt, quite a burden. I certainly do when I make my mistakes, when I have my failures. I beat myself up for days. <laughs> now, if, if you've gotten to the point where you can forgive yourself right away and get on with life... I want to visit with you and learn your technique because I just punish myself relentlessly. Peter has failed Jesus, and that has to be on his mind and in his heart as Jesus has appeared to them. And Peter has to be wondering, what's he think of me? We both remember when I boasted, I'll never fail you. I'll never leave you. That won't be me. And Jesus said, well, as a matter of fact, Before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter remembers that. What's his relationship with Jesus? Will it ever be the same again? The 21st chapter of John restores Peter through this process of testing his love for Jesus. The first part of this I want to talk to you about speaks to us by application of the long night of failure. I've mentioned before, as I've preached through this Gospel of John, many times we have seen that John uses the elements of light and darkness in a spiritual application. He tells certain narratives. Before he tells the narrative, which is a very dark, discouraged, and depressing story, he might say, and it was night. Or he might say, and it was winter. And then he tells this narrative that is a very gray and and cold and disturbing narrative. John did that very artfully. It wasn't accidental. You, You may have never noticed that before. But he brings in these ironic elements. There's been times when uh, I've done funerals. And it's been maybe a gray and dismal day. But just at the right time, the sun broke through. We saw that as being significant in lifting our spirits. How symbolic that we have a hope that this light finally shines in our greatest day. You know, we've done things like that, haven't we? John did that. Not only did he tell a discouraging story, but he surrounded that with, it was the dead of winter, or it was the darkest of night. So John starts the 21st chapter also informing us that the disciples labored through the night, and he's setting a background for their struggles. That's the reason I call this the long night of failure. The disciples don't quite know what to do with themselves. Jesus is risen, but they haven't put the whole puzzle together to where they understand that because he's risen, they are now 
being commissioned to go forth with the message they have been trained to preach. They haven't put this whole puzzle together. So they're lost. They're without purpose. They've seen the appearances of Jesus. They're trying to process that, but they're sitting around thinking, what do we do now? And Peter speaks the obvious. Everybody might be thinking it, but no, nobody wants to speak it. And finally, Peter says, boys, I'm going fishing. What, what else can we do? It's, it's back to what we used to do. We don't know what else to do. And the others, they nod. It's about all we can do. We're going with you. So off they go. They're going to fish through the night. They've got a late start in the day. They fished through the night, and they didn't have any luck. Discouraged, despairing, depressed, they returned to their former craft. These rudderless disciples trying to figure out what was that all about? What a ride it was, but what does it mean now? And then there's the more practical practical aspect of this. Not only did it, they did not know what to do, but, and they returned to the only thing they know how to do, but they also have to eat. They need to provide for their families. Now, have you ever stopped to consider how did they provide for their families while they were following Jesus? They were full-time students of his. Wherever he went, they went. The Bible doesn't tell us how the families were provided for. But if you will follow my line of logic and thinking, that whenever you follow God and obey Him, your needs are taken care of. And so while these disciples had committed themselves to Jesus, I am fully convinced that God made sure that their families were not left destitute and uncared for. That's one of those lessons that pops out from this chapter. You take care of God's business, God will take care of your business. They fished all night, John says, and they caught nothing. There have been times, I think, when we have had our own long, drawn-out night of failure. In my life, there's been times when I know that I've attempted with everything within me to do what I know is right and reasonable, only to have nothing to show for my efforts. That's the long, unproductive night. It may be weeks, it may be months, it may be years, but that's metaphorically the long night of failure. I don't know how many of you have been driven to the point where finally you just drop your head to the table and you say, God, I don't get it. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I don't see anything happening. For all my efforts. That's the long night of discouraging failure. No wonder John makes note of the fact that these fishermen who fished all night and took nothing laboring in the darkness. Because people, what is more discouraging than suffering the pain and seeing no gain? What's more discouraging than sowing and having nothing to reap? These are professional Men, they're not out fishing with their bass boat and their rod and their reel and their fancy lures. This is not recreation. They have to live. Their success in life depends on bringing home food or something marketable, and they failed. 
And they, being professionals, used every trick in the book that they had learned through their lifetime of being successful fishermen. Their livelihood depends on their success, and they got skunked. We've been through those circumstances. We did our best, and we came up seemingly too short. And we seem mocked by our sense of failure. Point number two. At the end of the night, there's a breakthrough. And maybe you're going through a dark night. And maybe you've been through a dark night. You know what the good thing about nighttime is? Daybreak is coming. It won't be night always. It may seem like it is. It may seem like it's an inordinately long, dark night. But I'm telling you, God has designed the rhythm of things that daybreak is coming. And that's what you've got to hold on to. It's temporary. Your struggles in the night are temporary because God has an answer. He has a breakthrough for you. Your disappointments hurt, but they're temporary because there's victory. The darkest hour of the night only means one thing. It's going to start getting lighter from here. Sometimes we just don't know where that darkest moment is. We think we've reached it before we have. You're going to have some struggles. You're going to have some setbacks. You're going to come to a time in your life when you think you have lost your touch. And what used to work for you just doesn't work anymore. But daybreak's coming. It's going to get better. And everything is somehow going to be all right if you're continuing to keep your hand in the hand of Jesus. And the psalmist so sweetly said, weeping may last through the night, but watch, joy comes in the morning. Hold on until God takes over. That's all he's expecting. Just hold on till he steps in. Because he hasn't measured what you can stand. And he doesn't miscalculate. He knows what you can endure better than you know what you can endure. If you don't hold on until God takes over, you let go. You're surprised what you can do when you have to. When you think you've gone as far as you can go and you can't go another step, when you realize the motivation for taking another step, you take another step. But God will come. You just got to be determined to hold on until he shows up. And how many of you think that sometimes it feels like God's running late? You think God has under has overestimated my abilities. I can't do this. Yes, you can. You can. If you can just hold out until the sun begins to break over the horizon, 
God's going to fix your situation. If you can just beat back the demons of nighttime that make you feel like you want to curse God and quit, you can make it. You just can't give up. That's the important part of this story or this first part of this chapter. These fishermen fished all through the night. They took nothing, but they didn't quit in the middle of the night. And evidently by the time Jesus got there and the sun was coming up, they still hadn't quit because they were still out in the water. Maybe they were that close. I don't know. There in that dim light of early dawn, they hear this voice calling out to them from shore. Friends, did you catch any fish? And they strain their eyes to focus and they can barely make out the silhouette of a man in those early dawn hours. They can't see his face, but they can hear his voice. No. Fishing's no good today. And the stranger says, why don't you cast your nets out one more time? Put it out on the right side of the boat. What, as opposed to the wrong side? And just like this had all been played out before, at the beginning of his ministry, what a way to start a ministry, a friendship. And then we bring it all around full circle. And the thing that puzzles me is these disciples have not yet figured out who this is. How many times in your life have you had a stranger come up and tell you, just throw your net on the other side and you get it, and you wouldn't recognize if this happened again, something is vaguely familiar about this. But according to John, they didn't know yet. So they throw the nets out on the right side. And this time, now last time they pulled the nets into the boat. This time they couldn't even get the nets in the boat. They've got the fish trapped in the net and they just let it float in the water because they can't pull it in. We're going to have to drag everything to shore before we can get these fish. The nets are straining. They're filled. They begin to break. Then it dawns on Peter. And I don't use the word dawn carelessly because something is coming to light. The nighttime is over. And Peter said, it's the Lord. And the Bible says that he puts on his outer garment and jumps in the water. They're about 100 yards out off the shore. And he decides, I'm not going to wait on this boat. I'm not going to wait on these fish. I'm going to make my way to shore. It's the Lord. Now, this is the informative part. So if you'll bear with me, I just want to give you a little knowledge to take away, okay? Some versions of this say that uh, Peter was naked. And it says that he threw this outer garment on himself because he was naked. And, of course, we in our 21st century uh, way of interpreting things, uh, we think we know what that means. The Greek word there, 
which I know you're not interested in Greek, but sometimes we just have to make reference to what the author actually was trying to say. It's, it's a word that is the root word of our word gymnasium. It, gymnos, G-Y-M-N-O-S, which came into uh, play, came into usage, because the Greek culture had these gymnasiums where the athletes trained, and they would train without any clothes. That stripped down everything that would hinder you. And they would train. Now, they were Greeks. They could do what they want because they, they didn't have a, the same sense of morality that the Jews did. But the Jews did not approve of uh, training in the nude. But that word, that yumnos, that having no clothing on became a, a word that was commonly used, except for the Jews, the way they used it was to be minimally dressed. So Peter had taken off everything that would get in the way of his doing his work, and all he had left was bare minimum to, to cover what would keep them at least a bit modest. And then, throwing his robe on, he gets into the water, and we logically think, wouldn't that weigh you down? Yes, it would. And I'll get to that in a minute. But at this point, we have to understand that for the Jews to be out in the middle of the boat, uh, in the boat, in, in the middle of the water, not the middle, but out 100 yards from shore, in the dead of night with a bunch of other men, what difference did it make if you had bare minimum on? Who cared? There was still a bit of modesty there because they weren't out in the public square, you understand. They were doing whatever had needed to be done. Nevertheless, when Peter says it's the Lord and he jumps in the water, the first thing he does is he takes his robe with him because I cannot think of any other reason to do that than for Peter to believe that what may be appropriate for being in a boat on the water, in the dark of night, may not be appropriate for standing before God. What I'm thinking is, Peter had a fundamental understanding of honoring God. And I think that's something we struggle with in the modern day church. I think by and large we are losing that respect and that honor for God. Now, I'll, I'll admit, I've been very tolerant and very patient with allowing people to relax a little bit in what they're expected to, how they're expected to dress when they come to church. I don't necessarily think that God cares if you're wearing a suit or not wearing a suit. But I do think that what we do is a reflection of how we feel we honor God. And I think those who do not have a sense of honoring God can be very careless in how they present themselves before God. Now, the man that has a nice suit and wears it to come and honor God does so because he wants to honor God. And the old dirt farmer that wants to put on his best overalls and come to church, does so because he wants to honor God. And God understands that. 
But we begin to have a problem when we have no sense of honoring God. And that concerns me. God is still holy. And this is His house. And sometimes we have more respect for people when we enter their home than we have for God when we enter His house. So Peter says, I'm not appropriate to stand before my Lord and my God. So he puts on the robe that would weigh him down in the water. Now, Peter didn't make it all the way. The boat caught up to him. He decided I might as well ride the rest of the way. But he made an effort. But he prepared himself to go before God. Let us do the same thing. Let us prepare ourselves, not only in the way we physically present ourselves, but let let us prepare ourselves spiritually to come before God. Prepare our minds. Cleanse our minds. We can't sit at home and watch our rated movies and jump up and go into God's house and have our heart and our mind and our spirit properly prepared to come before God. Busy body. Now back to the story. Have you ever noticed in John's gospel, in John's gospel, the way he tells it, I'm not telling you to go to another gospel. Have you ever noticed in his gospel, every time Jesus meets the fishermen in action, they are complete failures without him. John has a message that he was weaving here. In John's account, they can't do anything without Jesus. Professional fishermen that need him to get the job done. And it's the same here. They ought to be able to do it, but John takes note of the fact they didn't. They failed. And what a message that is to every one of us. We need God. You think you don't need God? You need God. And don't wait until God has to prove that to you. His hand upholds you. It's because of the riches of his goodness and the forbearance of his long-suffering that we have any success in anything we do. And the person who fails to recognize God undergirds him is the one that is getting ready, ready for a great fall in their life. Now, former President Obama had made a famous statement at one time in his presidency when he said to the taxpayers, whatever you've got, you didn't build that. And that upset a lot of people because we are individuals. We're self-motivated. We're self-made. But the thing about it is... God said that long before President Obama said that. I'm not making a commentary on how that applies to us as citizens of the United States. Forget that. I'm not going there. But what I am saying is that God effectively looks at us and says, You fool. You didn't do that by yourself. Who gave you the breath of life? Who gave you the health? Who gave you the strength? Who gave you the mind? Who gave you the wisdom? 
Who grew the trees so you could cut them and build a house? God's the only one that really has the right to say that. You didn't do that. Oh, yes, I did. Well, let God lift his sustaining hand and then let's see how much you get done then. Point number three. At the end of the night, there's restoration. After this long, laborious, frustrating night, the disciples finally make it to daybreak. The morning light illuminates the lake and they discover Jesus is waiting there for them. And in his matchless style of mercy and grace, he takes pity on the weary fishermen and grants them a miraculous catch of fish that they bring in to the shore, towing behind the boat. They may have not had a lot of success along the way, But at the end, they had success. They couldn't measure their success. Listen to me. They couldn't measure their success minute by minute. They couldn't measure it hour by hour. They had put all the toil and the labor into it without seeing any evidence of success because it all came in one fell swoop at the very end. And I'm telling you, sometimes serving God is like that. We like to see a reciprocation. I put effort in, I see fruit back. But sometimes in living for God, sometimes in serving God, sometimes just in whatever you do in life because you are a servant of God, whether it's your, your job, your business, your family, whatever, you work and you work and you work and you cannot measure your progress minute by minute. But if you continue in God, when that success comes, it's going to come like a river. They did not get their net full of fish, one fish at a time. They got it all in one batch. And come on, people, do you really care how you get it? Does it matter to you if God is storing them up till the last minute as long as God still blesses? Does it really matter? So what we have to do is discipline ourselves so we don't get discouraged while the reward is piling up. Now I want to envision. Mine's been piling up for a while. When when God finally opens that door, it's going to come spilling out. Oh Lord, there's been years of piling up here. Oh, your closet's full. (laughs) The storage bins in heaven are overflowing. You've been working hard. You've been working long. You haven't seen one thing yet, not one little minnow. (laughs) But the lets are breaking in heaven. And when God finally releases it, it's going to pour on you. The the blessings are going to pour on you because they've been there for years now. Curiously, John records. Now, you've got to understand how many years later after this happened that John sat down and wrote this down. Years later, when he wrote this, he's thinking, well, we put the nets out. We had nets full of fish. We brought them into shore. We pulled them in. And then John says, and there were 153. Now, who remembers stuff like that? 
Sometimes we just focus on those little details, don't we? John remembers this detail. Now, here's information again. Another information warning. If you need a bathroom break, this might be a good time if you don't like information. John said 153 fish. The fact that he did that has given rise to a lot of silly theories. Let me begin by giving you a, a Pastor Rook's quote. Weirdness is the offspring of speculation. Write that down and live by it. If we don't have the facts and we start speculating, you get weird. I may look at you, but I'm checking out the minute you get weird. Fourth and fifth century theologian Augustine, you may recognize as Augustine, attempted to ascribe significance to the number 153. We're going to have fun with this. Augustine looked at that and he, he decided, do you know... If you add 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 through the number 17, you come up with exactly 153. Ooh, doesn't that give you Holy Ghost doodads? No? Well, me neither. But then some modern-day theologians came along, Hoskins, Davy, Smith, and they looked at uh, Augustine's theory on this, and they decided to go one up with him. They said, let's build a pyramid. So if you put the number at one at top, and the second row is two and three, and the next row is four, five, and six, and then on until you've got, you've got, uh, you've got uh, an equilateral triangle, numbers one through 17. And then when you've got something that's got three on it, automatically you can start thinking of God and the Trinity. So I'm telling you, weirdness is the offspring of speculation. And even so, who cares? Why did John put 153? Not so Augustine could come up with a mathematical formula to figure out why. He put it there because he was there. And that was a miracle. And when they got done counting, 153 fish, that's all they talked about for days. We pulled in 153 fish at the last minute. He couldn't forget that. Because when God does something for you, you remember every detail of what he did because it means something to you. And the reason that John put that in there, secondly, is because it bears testimony to the fact that I was there and I have information nobody else knows. I am an eyewitness of these things, period. So much for pyramids. Jesus calls them to shore. He has a fire that is ready for them, a charcoal fire. I take you back to Peter's failure. And he was standing around a charcoal fire. And here in this 21st chapter of John that redeems Peter, he once again finds himself around a charcoal fire. Because in Peter's life, things happen around charcoal fires, good and bad. In one case, standing around this charcoal fire, he's full of fear. It's in the dark. You remember? And he's accused of being one of those following Jesus. You're one of those. I think I recognize you. I am not, he says, cursing and swearing. And he denied him three times. So here they are. Around the charcoal fire, Jesus taking his famous recipe of bread and fish. 
that served him so well in his ministry. He fed 5,000 with bread and fish. He fed 4,000 with bread and fish. He can handle a few disciples with bread and fish, except this was a private invitation. You can smell it cooking when they get on shore. And he says, grab a few of those fish and bring them on, because this time they're contributing. And having enjoyed this delicious, fresh, hot bread, breakfast coming off the hot crackling coals it's now daylight not the darkness of night and here in the daylight Jesus says come and dine they've eaten the meeting is awkward for Peter and Jesus turns to Peter and says Peter do you love me And Peter's first answer is, well, of course I love you. What kind of question is that? And Jesus doesn't want to settle for a flippant answer. And he says, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. A little while later, Jesus looks at Peter and says, do you love me? And Peter says, yeah, yeah. I thought we talked about this. I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. A little while later, Jesus turns to Peter and he says, do you love me? Are you having a problem with conversation starters or what? What's the deal? We've been over this twice now. And the Bible says the third time, Peter is grieved my wife asked me, said, why was he grieved? Now, the common theory on this, if you've been in church for any number of years, if you've sat on any number of preachers, you've heard the very common theory on this, that two Greek words that are used there, uh, agape, phileo. And Jesus asks Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me? And Peter says, I phileo you. I love you like a friend. Phileo, Philadelphia is from where we get a word from that phileo. And, and, the, and the, common, the common observation is that Jesus was asking Peter, do you love me with a close, intimate, personal love? And that Peter was refusing to acknowledge that. And he was saying, no, but I like, I like you for a friend. And Jesus was not happy with his marginal Limited response. But D.A. Carson, one of the great, great theologians we have living today, has observed that John, throughout his, throughout his gospel, had used the terms interchangeably. He made no distinction between the two. So we're, we're going down a rabbit trail when we're trying to make Jesus say something that he was not intending to say, and Peter make a response he was not intending to, to respond. And Jesus was not saying, do you love me? He's, he said, do you love me more than these? And we'll deal with that in a minute. But he was not trying to say, you, do you love me with the deepest passion? And Peter was not giving him a marginal response. Take that completely out of the equation. Cleanse your mind of that. D.A. Carson calls it uh, exegetical fallacies. If you want to write that down, then work that into your conversation later this week. You'll... And says, so why was Peter... Grieved. 
And my response was, because if you and I were sitting there in the living room and about every five minutes I kept asking you, do you love me? And you kept telling me, yes, I love you. You'd think something's wrong in our marriage. Why do you keep asking? Do you have some doubt about this? Well, of course it was beginning to work on Peter, but you've got this other dynamic working. You've got Peter who not long ago had said to Jesus, I'm not going to fail you. Never. Everybody else may walk away, but I'm with you all the way. And he found out that Jesus knew him better than he knew him. And suddenly, when his loyalty, his devotion, his love is being questioned and questioned and questioned, Peter has to take pause and say, I think I love you, but maybe I better ask you if I love you. Because I think I'm being set up for another failure here. And it grieved him to think maybe he was in for failure again. Do you love me more than these? And Peter, in this time, in great humility, he says, yes, Lord, I I love you. And we can almost hear Peter saying, I think I do. I was sure at one moment, but I think I do. I want to. More than these. We, we, we don't know what more than these is. Weirdness is the offspring of speculation. Some suggest that Jesus was referring to these things. Things People have reached on the, preached on these things. Do you love me more than these things? Do you love me more than your car? Do you love me more than your house? Do you love me more than your own family? These things, do you love me? Some have suggested that these refers to the disciples. Do you love me more than these other people? It doesn't make any difference what these is. What matters is that Peter's loyalty and devotion was being tested regardless of what Jesus was referring to. We'll never know for sure. But what is important is Jesus was testing Peter. Do you love me? Peter and him understood these. We weren't in on that part. But do you love me more than whatever? Feed my sheep. And then Jesus says to Peter, If you truly love me, just feed my sheep. And when Peter wrote his books, you you look at Peter referring to himself as being given the commission to care for the flock. Because what Jesus spoke into his heart around that charcoal fire set in so deep that the last thing that Jesus did to Peter was commission him, one of the last things in his final days, commission him, Peter, when I'm gone, take care of the flock. Look after the flock. But you're not going to be successful looking after the flock if you don't love me first. You cannot love them if you do not love me. And Peter writes as himself, being given the task of looking out for the sheep. And then Jesus said, Peter, you better love me because in the process of serving me and ministering for me and caring for the sheep, you're going to be led where you don't want to go. You're going to die. Here's here's the summary. You're going to die a violent death. And here's Peter's response. 
Jesus says, you're going to die a violent death trying to serve me. And Peter points at John and says, what about him? Misery loves company. Are we all going to die? Are you just pointing me out? And Jesus has, he straightens Peter out right there. You've got to get attitudes straightened right now before they just go clear off. He says, it's none of your business what I do with anybody else. Our business is all that matters, me and you. People, that's where we get ourselves in so much trouble is we fail to understand that God's business with us is our business. And God's business with everybody else is not our business. And you cannot look at yourself and then look at others and say, but God, you're blessing them more than me. It's none of your business. Everybody says, none of my business. It's none of my business. Preach to yourself. Well, Lord, I've been through so many trials and those people over there, they don't ever have any problems. And God says, it's none of your business. And when we learn that biblical principle one of the last things Jesus left Peter with, Peter, for you to be effective, you've got to understand But what's between you and me is between you and me. Keep your eyes off everything and everybody else. You're going to be tempted to think life's not fair, that I'm blessing somebody else, I'm ignoring you, and God, you don't love me as much, and why me? Oh, we always get into this, why me? Why me, God? Why me? Why not somebody else? They need it worse than I do. Give that plague to them. None of your business. Comparison is a tool of the enemy, and he'll defeat you with it. It doesn't matter what God's doing in and through somebody else. Do you love him? And are you willing to pay the price to serve him? That's all that matters. So we have this heart-touching account of Peter's restoration, his reinstatement. The man who deserted Jesus found forgiveness. He found restoration. Jesus placed his confidence in Peter that he would faithfully tend to the flock. People, that is the story of grace and redemption in a nutshell. We don't deserve God's love and forgiveness, but he offers it anyway. And it doesn't make any difference how we have failed and how we have struggled. I want to remind you. I want to assure you. I want to encourage you. The fire's been lit. The coals are hot. The food is prepared. And the master, regardless of your failures, is standing there saying, won't you just come and dine? Come and fellowship me. I don't care where you've been and what you've done. Just come and dine. Bow your heads.